Um, we've been through, we're going through Nehemiah right now. Nehemiah is a pretty interesting book. I kind of feel like chapter 4 is like, you know in Lord of the Rings? I'm only going to re- reference Lord of the Rings twice today. So I, I was going to do it three, but I was like, no, twice. Because that's, uh, that's my favorite, I think, my favorite reference. You know in Lord of the Rings where like it gets, like you get through the Fellowship of the Ring and it's like the action started to kick in. You start seeing these orcs come out. It's like the first one's kind of boring to get to the Mines of Moria, you know? I'm totally just making a nerd out of myself right here. It's kind of, you know, the first one's okay, then you get to the second one, and the second one, start, the action starts kicking in. That's the way it is in Nehemiah. The first couple of chapters, it's like, you know, chapter one and two, you've got Nehemiah kind of petitioning the king. He wants to go back to his homeland. He hears about, um, he hears about Jews that are there. Ezra came about 13 years, give or take, right before Nehemiah. The interesting thing is, is Ezra came, and Jews then tried to rebuild the wall, and they couldn't rebuild the wall. So now Ezra is still there. Nehemiah comes, and Nehemiah is getting opposition. He's getting opposition like crazy. Essentially, he's surrounded on all four corners of the city. So, what's very interesting is this book kind of takes place in that context. So, it's kind of like I said, like in Lord of the Rings. You're getting up to Helm's Deep. You're getting up to the fun stuff. It's kind of like that. So, Remember where this is at in the Bible. This is, in the Hebrew Bible, this is the last book of the Old Testament. This is, um, you know, in our, in our English Bible, the last book is Malachi. Chronologically, it's this book. This book is right before Jesus comes. You've got that 400-year period from 400 B.C. to when Jesus comes where there's, there's no prophets. It's quiet. Like, this is the end of the Old Testament for the Hebrews. What's very interesting about it is it ends, you have, and we'll learn this as we keep going to Nehemiah, there's a wall around the city. The Jews, they've, they've instituted temple worship again, and it's all, setting, it's all setting itself up for Jesus to come back. Everything Nehemiah is doing was planned by God to get Jesus to come back to Jerusalem to accomplish what Jesus was going to accomplish. So just keep that in mind this morning, and if you don't care to put that up, let's, let's read through it again. Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers in the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish it up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes. What they're building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. That's my favorite put down. If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. I love that. I'm going to start using that when, like, Hudson can't build something. I'm going to be like, a fox could break that down, Hudson. Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt, and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward, and that breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plied together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burden is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. 
At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, You must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans, with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your home. Essentially what this text is saying is that it's giving us an example of persevering under opposition. And I use the word persevering not in the sense that Christians kind of use the word persevering. A lot of times when you hear the word perseverance in Christianity, you think of you know, God saving you until the end. God's faithful to his promise and God will eternal the security of the believer essentially. You're eternally saved. I'm using persevering in a sense handling opposition. So when you hear persevering, think of persevering through trials. Persevering under opposition. Um, Four things I want to talk about, and we're going to go through the text. I want to talk about persevering essentially requires you to be able to take direct opposition. As a Christian, you will take direct opposition. I promise. It will happen. Um, I don't want to use myself as an example, but it's the only one I could think of. I, I did several times this the last few weeks just at work. You know, people uh, hearing of my Christianity, they're wanting to ask me a dozen questions and telling me it's not true. So you will experience direct opposition. And we're going to see that in the text. Persevering requires prayer. We're going to see that persevering requires much prayer. In fact, it's usually, it's usually the first thing Nehemiah goes to in the book of Nehemiah. He goes straight to prayer. You know, you're, when, you're, when you're under direct opposition, your first instinct is to like combat. Your first instinct is to like answer the question. Instead, he, he prays. He, he did it earlier and he's doing it now and he's going to continue to do it. We're going to see in uh, verses 6 and 9, persevering requires prayer and action. It's, it's essentially the same as verses 4 and 5, but it takes it one step further. We, we talked about this this week in our, uh, in our small group. Prayer and action go hand in hand, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that. And the last thing I want us to see is persevering requires us looking back at God's grace and looking forward at future grace. It involves looking back at what God has done. Persevering in the Christian life is all looking back at what God's done and looking forward at what God is going to do. So, in verses 1 through 3, did you could put that up there for me, Matt? Thank you, sir. In verses 1 through 3, so... Sam Ballot, here's he's building the wall. Sam Ballot's essentially like the antagonist in this story. He's the guy that he doesn't want the Jews to rebuild this wall. He wants them to leave. Um, it's very interesting because, and you're going to see this a little bit later, they're surrounded on four sides. Samaria was led by Sam Ballot. They're to the north. You've got the Ashdodites. They were to the west. The Arabs were to the south of Jerusalem, and you've got the Ammonites to the east. So they're surrounded on four corners, and they're trying to survive in this. So this is the part where Helm's Deep is fixing to take place. This is the fun part. So essentially what they do, if you look at the text, they start making fun of them. Sam Ballot starts making fun of them, and you're going to see Tobias start doing it here in a minute. And he says, I love some of these. Some of these are great. He says, what are these feeble Jews doing? And they were feeble. They, they, had, they didn't really have anything in the way of weapons. They just came 1,000, 1,200 miles from the capital. And they, they didn't have a lot with them. They were barely surviving. They really were a feeble people. Throughout most of history, the Jews were a feeble people. And so he's basically making fun of them for you know, being kind of a simple people and, and not, having a lot of, uh, not having a lot of goods. And he says, will, will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? The equivalent today of us saying, will they sacrifice, is saying, are you going to pray about it? You know, that's like making fun of a Christian and 
you know, person saying to you, oh, really, are you going to go to your God and you're going to pray about that? That's essentially the equivalent because they're, they're making fun of the Jews sacrificing. And he says, will they finish it up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? See, the walls were made out of limestone. When limestone got too hot, it turned into rubble. And so they're making fun of the Jews because the walls were limestone. And what they were talking about with the stones being burned earlier, remember Ezra came earlier? What they're talking about is they're talking about Ezra couldn't finish the wall. Nehemiah knew full well that Ezra didn't finish the wall. What Sambalat is saying is you can't finish the wall just like Ezra can't finish the wall. So he's really playing on, he's kind of playing like a psychological warfare with the Jews. So you've got, you've got this guy, he's standing here, he's making fun of them, probably screaming at them while they're, while they're building this, this wall. Essentially, what he's trying to do is if you say something long enough, eventually people, people believe it's true. If you hear a truth over time, whether or not it's true or not, if you hear something after you know, a certain time period, you start believing it. If people start making fun of you after a while, if you're like a soft soul, like me, you kind of tend to believe stuff like that. Um, okay, so here's the question. Here's the question today for this. Why is he so opposed to Nehemiah building the wall? I think the reason he's opposed is because he's going to lose face. He's going to lose influence. See, he was appointed by the king. I always butcher this name, Artaxerxes. He was appointed by him to be kind of like a lord over this area. And so the Jews coming in, essentially what the Jews are doing is the Jews are going to take resources from him and they're going to give him competition. They're, he's not going to live as well off. He's, he's got good reasons not to want them in this area. So... What I found interesting was I heard someone say the easiest way to oppose something you don't like is to ridicule it. So he's ridiculing it, trying to get rid of them. You know, another thing I noticed is I started thinking through the New Testament, and essentially God told Nehemiah to build this. God wanted Nehemiah to do this. This is part of the will of God that Nehemiah reinstitutes temple worship in Jerusalem. This is setting up the New Testament. This is God's work doing this. So what's interesting is I started thinking about that. You know, where else do you see God's will being opposed in the Bible? Um, you guys ever heard the story of Jesus in the wilderness? You see Satan is giving Jesus all these ways that he can try to accomplish his goal without actually doing what he's supposed to do, which was go to the cross. Same difference. What he's trying to do is Satan's trying to get him off track of God's will. That's what Sanballat is doing here to... Uh, to Nehemiah. And in Matthew 16, it's essentially the same thing in Matthew 16. Look at this with me. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, For be it far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and he said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. He calls Peter, his disciple, one of his closest disciples, Satan. Why? Why would he call him that? He calls him Satan because he's opposing the will of God. The will of God is that Jesus would be crushed for our iniquities, for our sin. And Peter is saying, you can do this a different way. You, you, you're not going to have to go to the cross. You can do this a different way. <clears throat> so God's will is being challenged. That's the whole reason why Jesus said that to him. It's the same thing with Nehemiah. God's will is being opposed. This is not just the building of a wall. We talked about this in a small group. This, this is more than just a wall. If it's just a wall, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. The, the land and Jerusalem was everything to the Jew. This is like Jesus for us. I mean, God's promises came 
to the land. They were all about the land, which ultimately would be fulfilled in Christ. But this is what the Jews had to go off of. Reinstituting temple worship, uh, the Jews spent a hundred years in exile not being able to sacrifice a lamb for their sins. And they really were struggling with being in exile. So going back to the promised land for them, was, it was everything. You know, something else I think... Um, I think we see in the text in verses 4 and 5 is um, perseverance requires prayer. And this is a very interesting prayer. It reads, you got it? I'll get it. Hear, O our Lord, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. That's a very interesting prayer. I don't think it's a prayer that we would we would pray today. It's very interesting because it, it seems it almost seems selfish. It seems like Nehemiah is excluding people, and it seems like it seems like he's doing it. Why, why would Nehemiah say this? Nehemiah is saying, "I don't want God to blot out your sins." Why would he say something like that? God's honor was at stake in this. This is God's project that he is doing through Nehemiah. This is not ultimately a project that just Nehemiah wants to accomplish. This is something that Nehemiah is accomplishing for God. He's opposing, Sanballat is opposing God. So when he prays this, he's praying this because God's honor is at stake. Let me read this quote to you from C.S. Lewis. This, this kind of helped me with this. C.S. Lewis said, The absence of anger is a most alarming symptom, and the presence of indignation may be a good one. For if we look at their railings, we find they're usually angry, not simply because these things have been done to them, but because these things are manifestly wrong, are hateful to God as well as to the victim. See, Nehemiah is not upset because he's being, you know, thwarted. He's being uh, opposed. He's upset because God's being opposed. And I don't think that's something that, you know, in America that we really understand a lot. I don't think we, and I, I don't myself, get very passionate about God's honor. You know, when someone makes fun of God, do you really get passionate about his honor or do you kind of shrink back? I kind of shrink back. And I think it's because I don't have enough confidence in the gospel. Something I wanted to look at with this is I don't think there's anything wrong. There's there's nothing wrong and there's there's kind of a mutual kind of a mutual relationship between praying for a lost person to know Christ and praying for Christ to judge the world. It's not contradictory. You and I live in a fallen world. You and I live in a world where Hitler killed millions upon millions of people. You have famine and disease all over the world. This is not a. This is not ultimately our, ultimately our home. This world will be set right one day. We. It's right for a Christian to want to look forward and have God set right what's wrong with creation. In Revelation 6.10, you see this in the New Testament. You see the contrast um, and the similarities between salvation and judgment in the New Testament. In Revelation 6, 9, and 10, it says, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw unto the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. So these are people that have been martyred. And they say, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And then in Romans 9, in Romans 9, Paul is, you can see Paul has an anguish for the Jews. The Jews have been given all the blessings, they've been given all the, the covenants, they've been given everything. Yet there are still Jews who don't believe. So at the same time, Paul says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. 
but I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my spirit. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ. He's essentially saying, I wish that I did not grow Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. This is the same Paul who earlier in Romans 8.18, he said this. He said, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time is not, are not worth comparing with the glory of it is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to, subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of children of God. So Paul has this immense desire to see people come to Christ. You can see it if you read Paul's letter. Paul wants to see people come to Christ. At the same time, Paul is saying here, when creation is being set right, judgment has to happen. Revelation tells us that judgment will happen. In order for, in order for the future to come, for the new heavens and new earth to happen, judgment has to take place. Everything bad will be made right. We will be changed in the glorified bodies. Everything will be different. So, Paul, what Paul is saying is part of, part of it being set right is judgment. So, in light of this... I don't think Nehemiah could react the same way we can because I don't think he had a full vision of the gospel. I don't think Nehemiah had a full vision of the gospel yet and, and final judgment yet. This is a quote I read. I, I really like this quote. He said, We should realize that expressed in Nehemiah's prayer, there's also an underlying insecurity. An insecurity that was inevitable under the cross, revealing the full extent of God's unquenchable love for humanity that as a whole stood at enmity in him, until the empty tomb could proclaim his triumph over evil through love, and until the inauguration of the kingdom of God could give assurance that righteousness will ultimately be vindicated. Those who have entered into that assurance have therefore a security within them, which the practice of the Christian ethic becomes possible. Boiling that down. Essentially what that's saying is that's saying on this side of the cross, we can have mercy on people like that. We don't pray for people's, uh, we don't pray for specific people's judgment. We pray that God in a general sense comes back and judges. But we don't look at a person because they oppose us and say, I wish judgment upon you. Jesus took the law and took the law to a higher level. He says, not only do you, not only, uh, not only are you... If you look at a woman, not only if you commit adultery with a woman are you sinning, but if you look at a woman with adultery, Christ takes the law and he, he ups it. He ups the law. He, doesn't, he didn't come to abolish it. He came to fulfill it. So I think in light of that, we can say that we, pray for, we can pray for judgment in a general sense. In Revelation, like I said, you see these martyrs and they say, Lord, O sovereign Lord, how holy and true, how long... Before you judge and avenge your blood on those who dwell on the earth. They're waiting for judgment. You see in Romans, creation is waiting for judgment. In light of the cross, I, I don't think Nehemiah saw this yet because Jesus hasn't came yet. He, he's still hoping in Jesus. He's still hoping in a future Messiah, but he doesn't see it like we do yet. So, Persevering through prayer. The, the interesting thing about this is the first thing he goes to is prayer. I mentioned this earlier. I find it interesting because that's not the first thing I go to when I'm opposed. The first thing I go to is how to combat what the person just said to me. You know, you're in an argument with somebody or you're in like a conversation. You usually don't, st I, I don't anyway. I usually don't stop. And it's funny that Nehemiah did. I usually don't stop and go, God, 
help me here. God, I, I open the, open the eyes of this man's heart, Father. I usually think of the next logical thing to say. I usually act. What's interesting about this verse in uh, verses 6 and 9 is there is action. Prayer and action are simultaneous. They, they both happen at the same time. Persevering, uh, getting through this requires both prayer and action. He's getting physical threats in, in verse 6. If you look at verse 6, it says, So they built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height. So it's, like, it's halfway up. It's like 9 feet tall. Well, it's actually more like that. You know, If I'm 6, that's not okay. So it's more like this. It's nine feet tall. Um, they found excava- excavations of it, and it was nine feet tall. Uh, the wall was 18 feet tall, and nine was halfway. So the wall's about halfway done. They're not there yet. They've got a little ways to go. So Nehemiah's response to all this, like I said earlier, it was to not retaliate. He didn't retaliate. What did they do? Verse 6 says, The wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. So they're, they're cornered on four sides and they're working. They continue on. They continue on doing what they were doing. His next one was to pray. They, he, they prayed. And they continued the work. So if they didn't retaliate, they prayed, they continued the work. Um, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of William Carey. Luke mentioned him last week. William Carey was a, a Baptist missionary, really the first modern missionary. And you may have heard this quote before. He said, attempt great things for God, expect great things from God. What that means is that means that when you attempt great things, expect it from God. Essentially, just boiling it down is action and prayer, trusting in God, and action go hand in hand. They're, they're two sides of the same coin. So my question, in light of that, is what do you lean more towards? We talked about this in our small group last week. Do you lean more towards trusting God in prayer to the neglect of action? Do you, do you trust God to the point to where it's more like laziness? It's more like you don't do anything? I, I lean towards that. I lean towards trusting God and letting God take care of minute details as opposed to leaning on action. And then some people lean on action and kind of take the prayer and the trust in God out of the whole aspect. So in light of this, looking at Nehemiah, which one do you lean more towards? Why do you, why do you think you lean that way? Is there, is there a reason why you may lean that way? Maybe it's a personality thing. We all lean one way or the other usually. It's really hard to balance those two. The last thing I want us to see is persevering requires us looking back at God's grace and forward for future grace. If you look at verse 14 at the very end, Nehemiah says, And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your home. So Nehemiah is telling the rest of the people to trust and have confidence in God. They're surrounded on four sides. This is this is Helm's Deep. This is this is where Lord. Of, this is where the Lord of. It'd be, it'd be almost like the second movie, Lord of the Ring, ends when the old man fires the arrow. Do you remember that part? Please tell me you've watched this. Because if you've not, you need to. Because it's the best movie ever made. The old man shoots the arrow, and it hits this orc right here. My wife knows because she's watched it with me 25 times. It hits, it hits, the arrow hits right here, and then he falls over. So, this is kind of, this is kind of where this is at. This, this text ends right here, and it's almost like leaving off right there at that point, and then the third movie starting with the battle. So he tells them, he tells them in the text to have, have trust and confidence in God. 
my question in a lot of this, do you have a leader? Do you have someone? The Jews were, as you can tell in verse 10, there's already gossip going around. Uh, in verse 10, it says, In Judah it was said, The strength of those who bear the burden is failing. That means they're failing at building the wall. There's, there's rumors starting. There's too much rubble. By ourselves we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And then the enemies come in and say, They will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. So they're hearing rumors. These people are, are just, they're, they're beat down, they're tired. They've walked 1,200 miles to a city where they're surrounded on four sides by four different groups of people that have an interest in them not existing anymore. And they're scared. They're freaked out. I would be. I'd be freaked out like crazy. Except I'd have a sword and a shield. And I'd feel a little bit better. My question is, is do, you have, do you have a leader or do you have anything in your life that can speak into your life like this? Do you, have, do you have someone in your life when you're struggling, when you're, when you're having issues, issues believing in the promises of God? Do you have a person that can speak into your life, can assure you of that, that God is still working in your life? What I found, what I found very interesting about Nehemiah is Nehemiah was no means a perfect man, but he was exactly the man that God called to do this. And God, God asks us as Christians to be speaking into one another's lives. In Hebrews it says, um, in Hebrews it says, encourage one another every day as long as it's called a day. That why you may not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You will fail in your Christian life if you neglect not just the corporate church, not just legacy church here, small groups, people being in your life, Christians who are strong and able to lift you up. You will fail as a Christian if you don't have that. I promise. Because I have been through periods where I didn't have that, and I have failed tremendously. The Christian life is not meant to be lived alone. The Christian life is meant to be lived in together, in community with one another. It's meant to be lived out with each other. And if you don't have someone, a stronger believer, a leader, someone that can speak in your life like this, I promise you're not going to make it very long, because I've done it. You won't make it very far. So, so what else can we see? So what did Nehemiah do? He reminded them of who God is and what he's done in the past. Really, what Nehemiah does is he tells them, remember the Lord who is great and awesome. I think you can take away from that. We, we know at least they had the first five books of Moses. So we know at least he's calling them to remember what God has done in those first five books. So he's essentially telling them, look at what God's done. Look at how he delivered Israel from Egypt. Look at how the exodus happened. Look at how God parted the seas. Look how great and awesome of a God we have. My question again is, do you have anyone doing that in your life? And can you do that in anyone else's life? Because essentially what he's doing is he's taking the Bible. He's taking, because they would not have known about this without some form of, of written or oral Bible. He's essentially taking it and he's applying it to their situation. Do you have someone that could take the Bible? That's why we memorize scripture. We memorize scripture so that when those bad days come, where you wake up and you don't want to wake up, you just want to lay in bed and you're having the most atrocious day ever, you can, you can take a verse and you can kind of lift your soul with it. And you have people who can do that for you. Nehemiah tells them to fight for their futures. He tells them, fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. It's very interesting because they're fighting for a physical future. I, I don't think the Jews knew fully 
what they were fighting for. I think Nehemiah did. I don't think the people did. Nehemiah didn't even tell, in earlier chapters, I believe it was in chapter 2, Nehemiah didn't even tell the people exactly what they were going to do with the wall yet. They just knew they were going there and they were going to live, but he didn't tell them they were rebuilding a wall that was going to take 58 days. So they're fighting for a physical future. And what we're doing is we're looking at this side of the cross. They're fighting, they're fighting to get walls rebuilt. Jesus has already came, fulfilled the temple's demands. We're essentially looking back at Christ. What we're looking forward to is lo- we're looking forward to a resurrection. We're looking forward to when the wrong will be made right. In Philippians 3.21, I love this verse. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. We're awaiting a Savior. Paul tells us in Philippians that our citizenship is not here. This is a stopover. We're, uh, we're pilgrims here. We're not, we're not here long term. We don't have the world's values because there's a, there's a resurrection coming. Eternity is a whole lot longer than you know, if you're lucky, 60 to 80 years on the earth. That's why our values are not the world's values. We're looking forward to a resurrection because Christ has already come. These people are looking for a Messiah. They're essentially looking to have a home and for a future Messiah. We're looking after the Messiah, looking forward to the resurrection. So persevering requires looking back at God's grace and looking forward at God's grace. Having people in our lives that can remind us of this. So just in summary of this, Perseverance is only for Christians. This is only for Christians. If, if you are an unbeliever, if you do not have the gospel, if, if you do not understand that Christ came to fulfill the law, when, when you lie and you steal, Christ died for that. Christ died for that if you are a Christian. What Christ did was Christ set wrong right. He graciously gave us a salvation that we didn't deserve. All other methods besides the cross is a temporary method that will not solve the issue. Yeah, you can kind of, you know, you can, if, if you're persevering through something, you can kind of, uh, you know, struggle your way through it. You know, if you're real type A, you can kind of just grip your teeth and just go for it. Or you can just kind of wallow in self-pity. But with the gospel, you don't have to do either. With the gospel... You have Christ's righteousness. You don't have to wallow in self-pity anymore. You can be you can be confident in the fact that there's a future resurrection coming. You can be confident in the fact that, that you are going to persevere through trials. And you will see trials as a Christian. You will see you will see instances where Paul, uh, for example, Paul, Paul gets Paul gets miraculously saved on the road to Damascus. And what is Paul told a few chapters later? He's told that he will suffer for the name. He's told that he will suffer for being called a Christian, for taking on Christ's name. All those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But we can handle the persecution because this is not our home. As I said earlier, the Jews fought against physical opponents in one. Jesus fought against spiritual opponents in one. Jesus beat death. The Jews are just looking to survive, get the temple reinstated. Jesus actually beat death for us. So we can say, as we're looking at this text, we can say that as Nehemiah, as Nehemiah and the people are awaiting their homeland to come back, Jesus, Jesus is our home. Jesus is our, Jesus is our homeland. Jesus is everything that gives us meaning. Jerusalem gave meaning to the Jews. Jesus gives us meaning. Jesus' perfect righteous life is is given to us and we are able to live in light of that. 
In John 6.40, Jesus said, For the will of my Father is that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the will of the Father is resurrection. The will of the Father is to set wrong right, to change us into the image of Christ. So essentially what I'm saying in conclusion is we can persevere for all these reasons. We can persevere. We have prayer to persevere with. We have each other to persevere with, to look back at God's grace at what he's already done in our lives and look forward at what he's going to do. He's going to continue to pour out grace in our lives if we're a true Christian. And he's ultimately in the end going to pour out infinite amounts of grace in eternity. We, we, we suffer through, uh, we, we perse- persevere through opposition with prayer and action. We take action. The Jews did not stop building. They kept building. They were, they were, they were demoralized. They felt terrible. They were getting made fun of, yet they kept going. We can do that in line with the gospel as well.